the Buddha once said, fools seek to pursue experience. The wise seek to understand it. The recognition of these two possibilities in our life, pursuing experience, chasing after it, or seeking to understand it. Turning to the second direction is the turning that really defines the entry and the living of the spiritual life, the entry into and the living of the spiritual life. And coming on a retreat, here as we are practicing, we have the opportunity to deeply understand our life, to understand what it is to be here, experiencing this that we call being alive. Coming on a retreat is a precious experience, a precious opportunity. It's something that perhaps we, towards the middle, or just after as we are here, of a retreat, we can sometimes take a little for granted. We can feel kind of settled in, comfortable, still a couple of days to go, so there's no sort of sense of it imminently disappearing. And it's almost like we come to a plateau of complacency. We're just like, oh, things are okay. I can kind of just relax. Which is fine to a certain degree. But easily what creeps in, I mean, relaxing is fine, but easily what can creep in and can creep into our life is a sense of I'll settle for. Just being comfortable. Nice state of mind. Easeful body. That'll do. I would have liked to awaken, but heck, you know, seems like a lot of work, so or a long way away. So maybe just a you know, couple of mindful spoonfuls of that lovely food we get served regularly. And it's necessary for us to recall, to remember, to bring to mind our aspiration, our intention, what it is that really moves us, and to, to come back to it again and again. It might be in quite different ways each of us would express it, but it's there whether we think in terms of peace or happiness or freedom or just the end of suffering or, or truth or death or, but whatever that is it's a symbol for something in us that, that kind of rises up and, and looks into the world or wishes to enter into the world in a way that's perhaps different than the ordinary and the habitual habit it's like remembering that for us is really important there's a you know frequent question that's asked. How can I deepen my practice? One of my teachers had a very succinct response to this question. He said, "It's simple." You always thought it was complicated and difficult. No, it's simple. He didn't say all that. He just said it's simple. But um, it's easy how we think. Deepening our practice is such a challenge, such a project. He said, "It's this: eat less, sleep less, sit more." and your practice will deepen. It's true. It works. And in terms of sit more, perhaps we could understand practice in a more sustained way. Don't take holiday, where we kind of think, oh well, done pretty well for the last while, I think I'll knock off for the next sitting or the 
this period here. I'm very inspired always by the stories of great practitioners and masters and uh, one that always comes to mind when just reflecting on the sense of commitment and aspiration is the story of Master Kusan, a Korean Zen master who lived in the, the last century, 20th, the 20th century. And uh, reading his autobiography, which was actually translated by Martine Batchelor, who's one of the, uh, the teachers here at Gaia House, and he was her teacher. Um, he said he went to do this retreat for a week, and he found he was kind of drowsy, but he'd committed himself to his practice. Really drowsy. And he'd actually, not just for himself, but actually for the welfare of his friend who had just died, who he, he was wishing to sort of generate some blessings for this dear friend who died. So he said, I'm falling asleep. I couldn't seem to stop falling asleep. So he said, okay, for this seven-day retreat, I'm going to stand on tiptoe. And he did. Now, he was a Zen master. I'm not suggesting you try and emulate that sort of thing. But the the inspiring quality of that commitment, I mean, try ten minutes on tiptoe. This is a week. But the, the kind of the, the inner fire or commitment that that brings. Now that doesn't mean therefore that we have to go and thrash our bodies or our minds in some sort of vain attempt to appear heroic. But it's more like how deep is our commitment? Can we sustain it in the face of those times of doubt or confusion or weariness or... Well actually things are quite comfortable. Maybe I can just hang out here. To see, and we've mentioned this already, but to see where we use our practice as a subtle reenactment of our life, of trying to get this, avoid that, i.e. be as comfortable as I possibly can. Practice can easily become an attempt to create a sense of safety, security and certainty. And that's often what's kind of going on underneath the attempt to get comfortable or get things the way we want them is an underlying movement or pressure from within that we're not always conscious of that's somehow trying to establish some stability, reliability, certainty, security, safety. And in the human condition and what it means to be one of these things that we are it seems to lie right at the core of our being is this powerful desire to feel safe, to not be vulnerable, to not be exposed to the appearance or the, the possibility or the actuality of, of danger, of harm. And so we, we kind of, we are engaged in this process of trying to make ourselves feel safe a lot of the time. It's a lot of what's going on. One aspect of that is the process of just creating a sense of who I am as a belief system of I am this, I am that. Again, we've, we've touched on and spoken about the sense of identifying with our experiences, defining who we are. Phew, now I know who I am. And that makes us feel sort of safe in a otherwise undefined and amorphous world of things. But equally significant in that trying to feel safe is 
again, it's kind of running along parallel and often underneath that kind of identifying with things. And a lot of why we're doing it is because we want to control our experience. We want to kind of know it in a fixed and reliable way so that we'll be okay, so that it will be bearable, so that we don't, we aren't exposed to the vulnerability that our life actually has at its core. It's like we can see how much time we can get into relating to what's going on with the, along the lines of something happened, how did it happen, what can I do to make it happen again, or what do I have to do to make sure it never happens again? You know, sitting in meditation, we have a good meditation. We don't think, what did I do? How did I get there? Was it that I, I sat down with my left leg in front of my right leg? That was it. It's always better when I do that. That must be it. And then I paid attention to the breath for ten minutes, and then I listened to sound. Maybe if I do that again. And it's like we, we're often trying to analyze what is happening on the basis of how it happened like this, so that we can either repeat it or avoid it. And that creates for us a sense of being in control, a sense of being able to actually create the conditions according to our wishes. And this comes out of this, this inner discomfort with our human vulnerability, with what it means to be human. It means to discover at a it seems like a tragically early age that the world impacts upon us in a way that we cannot stop it from doing. It touches us, we feel it. And our system is sensitive to that. It's actually equipped with this vast number of things, you know, organs, senses, eyes, ears, nose, body, tongue, for registering that we're being impinged on, that we're being impacted. And often our response to that, because it feels vulnerable, it feels out of our control. Often the first experiences, you know, when one is a, a, a tiny being, newborn, one is much less control than we even have the appearance of now on what happened. We're totally defenseless and dependent. And it's not so different now, actually, but we've kind of managed to create a a whole way of trying to make it seem as if it's different, so as not to actually have to, to feel what that's like to be in this world, the way it is to be in this world. We get really busy with doing things to keep ourselves from feeling that core level of vulnerability that, that often we sense at the times when we're actually still, when we're times when we're actually quiet, or we're steady, we start to notice that there's something in there that we thought we'd quite like to be calm and quiet and still, but actually when we find access to that place, often there's something at the bottom that's quivering, or something in there that's just going, ah, I don't know about this, ah. And it, sometimes it's really quiet and subtle, and other times it's really quite intense and extreme, and overpowering or overwhelming even. And if we don't see it, if we don't understand it, then the meditation can easily become a process of keeping it at bay, keeping it contained, keeping it wrapped up, so that we don't come into that place of vulnerability, of confronting the fact that this world 
is not the way we want it to be, is not configured according to our preferences, and shows little signs of adjusting itself in accordance with our desire. It's kind of a hard fact that we at some point in our maturing have to face. And it's all very well, it's an interesting idea, I can see it's like that. But down here in our hearts, it's like, ugh! That is not a nice prospect. It kind of can trigger all kinds of responses. It's like this really interesting situation. There's a, a sense of vulnerability we have in our lives. It's just feeling impacted and touched by things. And the response to it is often, I don't like this. I don't, I mean, we don't think this in our mind that consciously often. It's helpful once we start to see it. But it's going on in there, and we start looking for certainty. We start looking to fix things, to solidify things, to make things just so. Now, if we could know exactly what was going to happen next week, this week would be so much easier, wouldn't it? For starters, we could not have to worry about it. But that. If we actually look at our life, look at this wish for certainty that would, it seems to hold out to us the promise, if we could find certainty, if we could find security, then somehow that would make the vulnerability go away. That sense of being exposed and out of control, that would make it go away. Certainly it would, wouldn't it? If we could find security and certainty. And yet, there is only one certainty. There is only one certainty. That certainty is that this vulnerable, tender condition called being alive ends at some point. This is a reflection often invited, that we're often invited to, to bring to mind in Buddhist teaching and practice. The only certain, the only thing that is certain is death. And the time of death is unknown. And to ask ourselves, what makes sense in this reality? Because it's like we want certainty. Okay, so here we'll be given certain. This is the one you can rely on there. It's certain. It doesn't make that sense of vulnerability go away. If anything, it triggers it, it stimulates it more. And it's kind of like we're caught in a dilemma. We're caught in a dilemma. Trying to get away from vulnerability by finding certainty and yet nothing is certain except the very thing which makes us feel vulnerable which shakes us to our core we can't escape our vulnerability we can't delude ourselves into thinking that anything else is actually certain we can try but it's not so and it doesn't work if there was something else that was certain that we could rest on and believe in, that underlying vulnerability would go away. But there isn't something else. And it doesn't go away. Certainly not by responding to it, by trying to get rid of it, or fix it, or somehow escape it. So this kind of fact this kind of experience that lies at the core of our life it can seem at times when we're, when we're in touch with it when we're sensitive to it what to do? 
how to respond to this life that we find is like, which is like this. Can we actually enter it as we find it? Can we actually enter this condition, this vulnerability, this uncertainty, this kind of shakiness? Like we're walking our life on thin ice. I used to do a lot of mountain walking when I lived in New Zealand. One trip I went on with a couple of friends. At one point we had to leave the main path because there was a big sort of bluff covered with snow that looked very, very keen to come down in an avalanche and we had to we couldn't take the regular route. The only way through was to cross a frozen lake. And we were walking along, I was going to the front, finding myself in the unfortunate situation of being the most experienced in the group. Um and not that experienced, I have to say. But anyway, walking the ice axe ahead every step and so after a while, huh? Okay. Every second step. In one moment and I went through the ice. And fortunately only this was a very deep and very large lake, and I fortunately got my hands out and the ice axe out and you know, stopped at the waist level. My feet weren't touching the bottom by a good few hundred feet. Um <laughs> <laughs> and it was about 150 yards to the edge of the lake from where I was. And I said to my friend, Tom, stop. <laughs> I probably knew to stop. <laughs> and uh, fortunately I was able to extract myself from the ice. Turned out there'd been a stream running in, that its course was running in this particular line. And there was a line of thin ice going 150, 200 metres into the centre of the lake from one particular point, and the rest of the ice was fine. But every step after that, so like, put on the ice. Because <laughs> <laughs> the first two inches were soft, and then the hard ice, and the sort of foot goes in, and it stops. <laughs> and it was like, it was actually remarkably invigorating. I mean, obviously, it was pretty scary in the first instant, but there was no time to be scared. It was just like, you know, deal with it. I was lucky. Um, but that entering the vulnerability has something remarkably alive about it. I mean, we're conscious of it rather than afraid of it. We could have cancelled our trip and gone home. But, you know, when we came to that blast, we could have said, we can't do this. Too dangerous. But once we were out in the middle of the lake, there's <laughs> no choice. You can't say, sorry, we're not going any further sit here on the lake until it melts. Now here we are, we're in life. We can't suddenly decide, I shouldn't have done this, it's too dangerous. We're here. You know. So we have to meet that, we have to face that reality. And what is it to face our human vulnerability? That the, that the fact that this isn't forever. What is that? Is that I think I'd like to read or some extracts from a book, Mount Analog, which is a spiritual allegory written by Rene Dumas. It was never finished, but what was written was remarkable. And this is a piece from a conversation. And it's the response to one of the members of the group asking the other, have you ever been afraid of death? And he responds with an experience. 
Once I tried to picture death, the no more of everything. In my imagination I did away with all the outward circumstances of my life and felt myself confined in ever-tightening circles of anguish. There was no longer any I. What does it mean, I? I couldn't succeed in grasping it. I slipped out of my thoughts like a fish out of the hands of a blind man. And I couldn't sleep. For three years, I couldn't sleep. Then one night I had this marvellous idea to actually observe this experience and see what, where it came from and what happened. It was like a tightening in my stomach and under my ribs and in my throat. And I forced myself to relax, especially my abdomen. The anguish disappeared. When I tried again in this new condition to think about death, instead of being clawed by anxiety, I was filled with an entirely new feeling. I knew no name for it. A feeling between mystery and hope. And he goes on to say, I can admit to you that I do fear death, but not what we imagine about death, for such fear is itself imaginary. And not my death, as it will be set down with a date in the public records, but that death I suffer every moment. The death of that voice which out of the depths of my childhood keeps questioning me as it does you. Who am I? Everything in and around us seems to conspire to strangle it once and for all. Whenever that voice is silent, and it doesn't speak often, I'm an empty body, a perambulating carcass. I'm afraid that one day it will fall silent forever, or that it will speak too late. That the perhaps real death to fear is the loss of that quiet voice within us that asks the real questions, that's actually alive in the vulnerability, in the uncertainty, in the insecurity of what it means to be here. And it is alive in that, not suffocated by it or running from it. This entering the territory of uncertainty, reclaiming it, we could say, for our life, because our life is born in it, is founded in it. This is what Alan Watts referred to in his book, The Wisdom of Insecurity. To actually embrace the way things are, the truth of our vulnerability, is to actually find that this condition is an entry place, is a, is a gateway, is an open door into a sense of mystery and a way of being that offers us possibilities that certainty never can and that security actually suffocates. the possibility of knowing things as they are. So we have the chance here to examine what it means to experience life, to look at this sense of vulnerability. What is it at the heart of our being that 
shivers or shakes or tremors at the touch of life or at the prospect of its ending because we fear death, we fear it and we'd like to avoid it but we can't this is kind of like an existential conundrum so much of our being screams out no, not that and yet it must be so it must be so What is at the heart of this experience? The sense of I am. Me existing. What is this that is so afraid of its ending? What is this that shakes and tremors at the prospect of being no more? And I don't know if I'm the only one who's sort of wondered, but perhaps some of you have also wondered when one's walking around, well not walking, I think probably more likely standing or sitting, in certain small rooms in the house, there's these little messages that somebody's left, save me, please save me. There's quite a lot of them, (laughs) written on little cardboard shoes, save me, and you think, someone's in danger. Maybe there's a prisoner in Gaia House. That's what they use that tower for. And they're trying to get help. Gosh, what should I do? Save me. Because there's messages everywhere. Maybe they're somehow trapped in the plumbing. This is the only way they can contact me. There's some being here. And we think, well, that's what the messages are saying. Maybe it's true. And, you know, maybe we start looking. Oh, where's the thing? What's going on? What does it mean? What do, these, what do these messages mean that are saying, help, save me, protect me, I'm in danger? You know, don't flush me down the toilet. <laughs> of course, perhaps after some reflection or perhaps consulting with the managers, we might then discover that actually the, the real intention is, is somewhat different than our fear had suggested. Or the real message is different than our fear had suggested. But it's kind of a remarkable metaphor. Because it, like, it, it sounds like there's somebody out there saying, save me. And if we think it's the kind of somebody that we think we are, then there's a real problem. Obviously, because they're in danger. But if we see that this message is actually saying to us, oh, pay attention to this thing that's saying big, generally blue letters save me Oh, it's asking me to respond to this thing it's not about something else it's not something apart from these little cardboard tubes that's in danger here it's just these things need some attention they need to be responded to in a particular way i.e. don't throw me in the rubbish don't put me down the toilet don't screw me up, rip me up or whatever else now maybe the little voice that's in here going, ah, save me. It's kind of similar. It's saying, oh, we need to know how to respond to this thing because there's a certain way that's helpful and there's a certain way that isn't helpful that, you know, blocks the plumbing. And yet often what we do when we come into contact with that sense of vulnerability, that tends, it's kind of like we want to flush it. And that's 
get this out of sight, you know. But actually, what is it to meet it? To actually sense that tender, vibrating, vulnerable being that's saying, I'm in danger, or I'm scared, or I'm feeling right now. That seems to come with it a an unquestioned, and it seems almost unquestionable from a conventional point of view, unquestionable sense of there being someone here who's saying, please save me from this fear, this vulnerability, this condition that I'm in or that I find myself in or that I fear that I'm going to find myself in. And actually just investigating, well, what's happening? What is here? And there's two bases, there's two primary aspects of that sense of, of me being here that we can see, that we can look at for ourselves to see what's the truth of it. And the first one is the fact that we're conscious. There's this consciousness going on that registers experience, sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and the thoughts and feelings of the sixth sense of the mind. Five physical senses in the mind. And they talked about in the tradition as the doors of consciousness. It's like things come in through these doors or windows or whatever. And we experience life in this way. It seems this is what's going on. And it feels like I'm the owner of these experiences because they've come into my house. I'm this conscious being and it's happening to me. So we see, of course, that it's changing, it's shifting, it's moving. There's nothing fixed in all of that. And yet, again, underneath that sense of the, the kind of more obvious and gross identification that goes on with experience, again, there's a, a perhaps more subtle or harder to spot or to see, or to even intuit the thing that's happening there much of the time. And it's, it's what we could call a subtle sense of agency that again is unquestioned. It's a sense of, of doing it, of making it happen, of somehow being responsible for all of this. What's happening to me, or within me, or around me. That somehow I am doing it, I'm affecting. I'm creating, I'm controlling, I'm responsible for all these, even if I don't own these things that come through the window or the door, or sometimes through the roof it seems like, into my little house, even though I maybe don't own them because I can see they're coming and going, coming and going, but it's obviously something to do with me that they're coming in here at all, or, or occasionally leaving. They're usually not the ones I want to leave. And yet somehow still it's me doing it. It's, it's just this, this sense of making it happen or creating it, this world, somehow. You know, how many times does something go wrong and we blame ourselves? Or something difficult happens and it's my fault? Or something great happens and oh, I've done wonderfully. Those are the more, again, gross expressions of that sense of something within us that's making it happen. As they were kind of like this miniature sort of, you know, God in here who's playing with its sort of micro-universe, sort of doing it the way it wants it to be. 
And we can feel it in the sense of control or lack of control and discomfort with that, that we contact, that we feel. A sense of power that, or, or control that brings with it a sense of responsibility for success or failure. And how powerfully these two perceptions or projections that we create configure how we live, how we live and how we feel, whether we're successful or whether we're failing. How much of our life turns on those concerns. Am I succeeding in being liked or failing? Am I succeeding in being good or failing? Am I succeeding in meditation or failing? And yet ultimately neither of those things are really true because they assume in an unquestioning way that we are responsible, that we're making it happen somehow. That there's somebody here who's doing this. But is it so? What would it be to question that really profoundly? When we see the habit of identifying and stop being so bored into it, and stop feeding it so much, then we start to think what could be seen, what could be recognized when we're not lost in that way of identifying is another way of understanding or experiencing what it means to be alive to be here. It's like the breath. How many of you remembered to keep breathing in the last five minutes? Did it stop when you forgot to keep breathing? Obvious question, isn't it? No, it does it quite fine without you. Now this incredibly vital thing that without which we're dead within minutes gets on quite well without you. And being there to tell it, breathe in, breathe out, take a deeper one, take a shallow one. Not required, is it? Your body tingles, it vibrates, it's warm, it's cool. Sounds come in. Have you ever tried to decide not to hear things? I'd like to not hear the rocks, please. I'd like to hear beautiful music, that would be nice. Beautiful music, please. Does it happen like that? Not to me. I mean, it's remarkable. Thoughts grow in our minds like grass grows out there. You know, it just grows, it grows. We think, why does it keep growing? I want it to stop. I'd like a nice flat lawn, please. It keeps growing. We just uh, received a message from some friends uh, living in the south of France and uh, they had a lot of rain there and they just warmed up and he said, there's, there's this beautiful poem you may have heard. It actually speaks very uh, beautifully about this uh, sense of not that we're not making, or we don't need to make it happen or control. It's, 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 a, it's a Japanese haiku. It says, sitting quietly, doing nothing. Spring comes and the grass grows by itself. How beautiful. My friend sent this message, he said, we think there's a piece that was lost in translation. It should be, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. And Dan and Kirsten have to cut it and mow it and collect it and throw it away. They've got rather a large lawn. And it's like grass grows by itself. And then we kind of find ourselves in the business of tending the lawn. And it's 
That's an ongoing process. And anyone who thought they were in control of their lawn has basically created a recipe for suffering, haven't they? We know that. It's like if we were in a ship on an ocean voyage and the wind and the waves and the and the, the ocean currents are, are strong and powerful and it's, it's kind of scary to be out there in this boat all by ourselves. But at least we've got the steering wheel. And we stand there in the cabin and, you know, we see the wind coming or the waves or whatever, we turn it this way, we turn it that way, sometimes we go like this, sometimes like that. And, you know, we're going through our life out on this ocean. And then, because sometimes it seems we turn this way and we go that way, so like, sometimes we turn this way, we go the other way. Eventually we go down and check in the engine room and somehow it seems the steering wheel hasn't been connected to the rudder. And all that steering left and steering right wasn't actually what made the boat go left and right. That was the wind and the waves and the currents and the nature of the boat that did that. It's still kind of scary out there on the ocean. Perhaps it's even more scary because we, we haven't even got the illusion that we're steering or in charge, but on the other hand, you can sit down and enjoy the voyage. And actually you see, wow, big waves, yeah. Oh, fish, yeah. But if we're holding onto the wheel, going, this way, this way, it's like there's no room to live in that. The vulnerability of our existence is scary, is unsettling, but if we actually meet it, if we actually trust in it, it opens up possibility. Opening to our vulnerability brings a natural sense with it of spiritual urgency. How, how easily, when we, when we manage to cover over that vulnerability or create the illusion of safety or certainty, <coughs> create the illusion of safety or certainty, we put things off till later. We put off what's really important till afterwards. The complacency of just coasting along. Just getting by for now. Thank you. And, you know, this is kind of what all too easily religious institutions pretty much set up as the whole of spiritual practice for us if we take them too superficially. What we could call, or in fact, the phrase I was recently reading in a book by Stephen Batchelor, Buddhism Without Belief, he speaks of religious consolation. The idea of heaven, or a better rebirth for Buddhists. Heaven for sort of Judeo-Christian type religions. A better rebirth. Sort of like, oh, well, if I just, you know, try and be nice a little bit, then things will get better in the next life or in the afterlife. And it's like institutionalizing that tendency we have to delay or avoid engaging with what is really important. If we see that that's going on and we don't address it, it would be a mistake. 
spiritual urgency is a vital component of our condition. We're endowed with it. It's not easy to meet. We're endowed with it because we need the energy it brings us to faith, the potency of conditioning and the habit of seeking for comfort ahead of truth. Kabir was a 15th century Indian mystic poet. He said once, and wrote once, he said, Friend, hope for the guest while you are alive. Jump into experience while you are alive. Think and think while you are alive. What you call salvation belongs to the time before death. If you don't break your ropes while you are alive, do you think ghosts will do it after? The idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic just because the body is rotten? All that is fantasy. What is found now is found then. If you find nothing now, you will simply end up with an apartment in the city of death. If you make love with the divine now, then in the next life you will have the faith of satisfied desire. So plunge into the truth. Find out who the teacher is. Believe in the great sound. Jump into experience while you are alive. What you call salvation belongs to the time before death. Jump in to your life. Is there something within you that calls you to do just that? Even though it means jumping into the uncertainty, the vulnerability, the uncontrollability, looking really carefully at the way we create, construct and support a sense of identity that shields us or attempts to, though fails in the end, to shield us from that existential human reality. What is it? What are the ropes that bind us that we need to free ourselves from in this life, in this moment, right now? What is it that binds us at the core of our experience, at the core of our being? The belief in death is based on our idea that we are this body and mind. This body and mind will end. For sure, this is the certainty of life, the only one. But the truth, the deepest truth of life, is not subject to birth and death, is not defined by what happens to this body and mind. And yet this sense that seems so deep within us that we have somehow this, this separate existent self-identity existing apart from everything else, removed from the rest of existence, independent from and therefore threatened by dissolution, ending, cessation. Really to look at this, 
what is that? What does it mean to be here? Is it really like that? It's not to say that we aren't here. Of course, this is me, my body, and that's you, and you know, it's not you over here giving the Dharma talk. Don't you know, try and confuse that or somehow try and establish a different view of not being here than the one of being here. But it's like, what is it to question that? What is it to be here? What is it to enter our life with no conditions? No conditions for our willingness to do so. To discover what lies beyond, but not apart from, that which is born and dying. To realize that which is beyond but not apart from what we call and experience our mind and body. Not something, not nothing. This asks of us a profound and we could say a total and wholehearted commitment to a path of learning, a path of entering into our life as we find it, not as we wish it, but as we find it, trusting that that wholehearted entry to go into completely is therefore to leave no path behind, and therefore to touch and be touched by that understanding which reveals the end of separation. A teacher who I have much fondness for, I'd like to just, Ajahn Sushita, who is an English Buddhist monk and abbot of the monastery at Sita, Sita Vivika, comes from the forest tradition of Thailand. I'd like to finish with a quote from him. He says, There is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to realize that really the learning part is where we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says, keep going. Past the area where you can't control it anymore. And trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth, to honor truth, and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. Are we willing to enter unconditionally 
the mysterious vastness of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.